Yo, 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 how's it going? Right, that somewhat awkward opening to this specific podcast episode owes itself to the fact that this is literally the first audio recording ever that I'm doing on my brand new interface, which is an Apogee Duet 3. I'm not sure what the ethics of me calling out a brand name is, but shout out to my folks at Sound Service Game behind Berlin for hooking me up for an artist deal with these folks. Uh, these folks have been supporting me for over 10 years now, so uh, mad love, mad respect, sound service game. Behind. Okay, there is a very specific brand of struggle contemporary Indian drummers have uh, had to deal with pretty much all their lives. India being home to the very rich and complex rhythmic culture it is, most parts of the globe will expect anyone of Indian origin to kind of uh, launch into a plethora of complex 28 slash 9 time signatures, uh, the drop of a hat. And for those of whom who pay tribute to their musical roots that lie in a somewhat more um, hybrid format, which uh, is also extremely prevalent in the country, uh, the scenario can be slightly different. Now, to the best of my research, there have been, here are a few names, drummers who have made it in the international scenario on their own terms without being on the fringes of what is referred to as uh, mainstream global music, without having to play diversity token. A few names off the top of my head would be Ranjit Barot, Adrian D'Souza and Tarun Balani. Oh, by the way, if any of you are listening to this, you're always welcome to come on this podcast. All you have to do is reach out. FYI. There's also Jivraj Singh, who's been on this uh, podcast once already. And the other name I'm going to drop tonight is Vishal Nayak, who is the center point of this episode tonight. And uh, his story kind of speaks for itself and I'll let the conversation do most of the talking. Ha, huh, that makes sense. Um, that being said, before I do proceed, though, this is me letting you know that this is an independent self-sponsored show. It's sponsored by my online music coaching academy, which is the holisticmusicianacademy.com um, or the holisticpianoacademy.com and both of which are pretty much the same place actually we have a new free course out for songwriters titled uh, the songwriter mindset um, it's currently free for all better users and will be rehauled and relaunched in the near future but for those of you who are going to try out this course it's currently completely free doors are open for that i did want to let you know about this it's also brought to you by my artist website which is everynowheremusic.com and my freelance writing business, which is tlwrites.com, which specializes in uh, artist bios and the writing services for global brands. On that note, without much further ado, let's do this. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. I just had uh, I was I was on the verge of 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 trying of rescheduling again and then decided not to. Um, so I'll tell you about it once we're talking. But I had another major, I guess, a life event. <laughs> you get engaged. Uh, 
More, no, 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 no. More, more uh, in, instability as usual. Just like lots of good things happening and lots of uh, not so good things happening. So not so good thing happened yesterday. Oh shucks! I'm sorry um, so, to hear, man. You want so, to talk about? It? I mean, uh, we talk about it pretty much. Yes, yes, right? absolutely. It's like it's probably a good thing. So yeah, we'd love to talk about it. Uh, Go for what it. What happens? But like, so yeah. Are we recording? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so yeah, I. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. No, th- thanks for coming on, man. Vishal in the house, Vishal Naik. We've been trying to get this ha- to happen for a while now. So thanks for making it happen, Vishal. I'm sorry for so impossible to schedule. It's- oh, no, I, I totally get that, man. I mean, uh, it's it, it really didn't come across as uh, playing hard to get or something. It was very evident that you are dealing with a lot. So don't worry about it at all. Yeah. I've had uh, I've had to move my studio multiple times in the last uh, year, Dang. and then we and then we just moved into a potentially final location at the beginning of June, and uh, yesterday, my long term studio partner told me that he doesn't want to do a studio anymore. Oh shucks! Yes, so that's what I was dealing with last night and now and part of the reason why I was considering rescheduling, but probably a good thing to just stick with the plan and talk. Yeah, it's a big, uh, big surprise and not a good one because I've uh, shared my uh, studio situation with him for about eight years and we've toured a lot and we're very close friends. So um, not good timing. Wow. We just did a big move. As you can imagine, like both of us have about like 15 years worth of equipment between the two of us. So there's a lot of things to pack up and move and keep track of. He has decided that he kind of wants to uh, go in a different direction. So, yeah. So it's a hard one for me to figure out because I've got some other good things happening. And um, I was looking forward to having a space again that I can work out of and not feasible anymore i can't really do it without by myself in uh in new york as you can imagine it's very expensive so yeah can very well imagine you know what's ironic i'm in an uncannily similar boat myself at the moment really yeah because what's uh, going on with you well um i'm based in berlin right but my studio's a little farther down south in germany in Mannheim. right like until recently like you i, I share that with a partner too who honestly does most of the work because i'm not in the country for a large part of the year right and most of the work i do will be at these co-working spaces berlin's good like that you can mm-hmm. hire a room for for very reasonable rates but uh i'm really missing a space i can just walk into to make music and i think pianists and drummers share the one uh, common What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say burden because that gives it a bad energy, but one common... Uh, Dilemma, maybe? Yeah, of space. You, you can't just... Yeah. Uh, I mean, you... It's not something you can do all day. It's like you, you have time constraints because you have neighbors and like, yeah, finding a place that you can play piano and drums in it. Uh, and just space, like physical space. Physical space, especially in cities like Berlin and New York, yeah. Indeed. Uh, and with, uh, I mean, I guess in a way, uh, I still have certain advantages over a drummer in the sense I can plug my headphones in into a decent stage piano and still get a relatively close experience to the real thing. But with drummers, I yeah. can't imagine an, an e-drum being the you know a legit substitute long term. No, not at all. Not, not for me anyway. Exactly. So, I mean, I will say over the pandemic, I did discover. Um, something called addictive drums 
addictive drummer, addictive drum. Hmm. Um, and uh, for the purpose of demoing music and stuff, it's about as good as it gets. So um, I forget the name of the company, but uh, it was, it's been great. I bought it like in 2020 when I didn't have access to a space to record hmm. and uh, really, really good uh, drum samples that are, you know, it's like, it's a multi-sample drum instrument, so you can hook it up to a pad or an electric, electronic kit. I do it with the little uh, Ableton push controller. Love it. So I'd recommend it, especially for writing and stuff. Like, Sweet. really, really well-recorded, uh, cool drum sound. Excellent. Duly noted. So for my listeners as well, make a note of that. Um, I actually quite like the way we started. I, I love keeping this spontaneous <laughs> and raw. Yeah. That being said, I'd like to rewind a little because uh, yours is sure, yours is please. an extremely fascinating journey. So you and I actually go way back, although we haven't actually spent that much time 3D. We, this is true. Yeah, it's been fleeting, but I've always followed your work and very admirably so. Same. Cheers, man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I'm going to say you're one of the first, well, in, hmm, I need to be careful about how I go about this because all of this goes on the record, but, um, what I've always deeply admired about you is the manner in which you've managed to shape the trajectory of your career without falling prey to stereotypical notions of what a South Asian musician or drummer is supposed to sound like. Oh. Um, when one reads up on you, you're very open about the fact you were from Calcutta, you were born and brought up there. Yeah. And yet the circle of musicians you're active in are the creme de la creme of uh, the New York scene, mm-hmm. well, a global scene, really. And correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're pretty much the only guy I know who's managed to form that trajectory in his own career. So uh, is that something you're acutely aware of yourself? I mean... It, I do notice it when people are surprised. Mm-hmm. I've met people over the years who, you know, when I, after a show or something, come talk to someone, they're like, wait, so you're from, are you, you Indian? Are you like from California though? Were you born here? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Like they don't, they don't think I'm actually from India. And then I lived there till I was 19 and moved here then. So there's a lot of people of Indian descent in the music scene out here, but there's not a lot. Sure from India that, you know, grew up there that are sort of playing the same kind of music I play, which I guess I've noticed. I don't really think about it too much, but um, I have noticed that people seem surprised when I tell them I was born and brought up in India, for sure. It's not something I've consciously tried to do. I think I'm lucky I get to play music I like. It's not a choice I made and I haven't thought about it or done. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And can I I also, uh, I I dare say, kind of explains a little why... Or how, and please correct me if I'm wrong, how you, uh, uh, it speaks a little for the mindset. You Basically what you're saying is you never really gave a shit. Yeah, I've just been, you know, I, I understand how fortunate I am hmm. to have been able to go to school in America and be able to stick around. And so because of that, hmm. I don't take it for granted and I go out of my way to ensure that I'm like taking full advantage of the opportunity I've given to do something that feels uh, good. You know, my big fear is that one day this will become no longer feasible and I'll end up like back in India working in the commercial music scene over there, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a struggle hanging out and staying in America doing what I do. Probably much more financially viable streams I could get into. Mm-hmm. But uh, so far I've been lucky and I 
you know, of course, a lot of that has to do with the initial support I received. I know there are so many of my friends I grew up playing music with in India that are there now that would have done anything in my position. So I think I owe it to everyone to just kind of stay true to what it is that I like. And I'm staying on that trajectory. And I think that just means I am. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, man. And I sincerely yeah. appreciate you speaking so openly about this. There's so much good stuff in what you just said and the specific points you addressed. The the awareness of what a blessing it is to have the kind of support to pursue something that's really close to your heart, pursue your life's calling, so to speak. And also being acutely aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of privileges that are... Um, Mm-hmm. taken for granted uh, by certain demographics in certain parts of the world yeah. are, are not as easy to come by for others in other parts of the world. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the internet flattening the world the way it has, the awareness has increased, but direct experience is a whole different story altogether. Yes, totally. Um, on that note, I'd like to take this opportunity. Forgive me if I sound too much like a journalist. I feel like I'm doing... I've been podcasting too much of late, but uh, <laughs> these are not interviews. So I keep stressing on that. And right. These are not interviews. These are conversations. Let, um, uh, with your permission, could we rewind to where it all started? Sure. Take us, take us back to Calcutta, man. What are your earliest memories of music? My earliest memories of music were probably my parents' uh, cassette music system at home, hmm. and uh, my dad and mom. We, I think, by the time I was old enough to use the stereo i think the record player was probably broken hmm. but uh and i don't know if they know this but whenever i was home i would uh you know after school or on the weekends or even when i was really little i would look at all the albums in my mom's uh guest room closet and i was always very fascinated with the lps and like the credits on the back and i would read them and my dad i think seemed to have a lot of disco stuff hmm. And my mom leaned more in the direction of like James Taylor and that sort of thing. Wow. So, yeah. And then I think the the music that I felt the most attracted to when I was younger was probably, I think my dad had a cassette of like a Nile Rogers, like a, like a Sheik and Sister Sledge hmm. compilation cassette. And I think it had a pink cover and I listened to that a lot. And I think that four on the floor disco thing sort of stuck with me through my whole life. So my earliest memories, musical memories are probably, weirdly enough, is like Sheik and Sister Sledge. Right. Um, like that song, We Are Family. And uh, you know that one? And then I Want Your Love. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All these classic Nile Rodgers songs. Um, yeah. Those were the those are my earliest memories, and that music resonates the most with me to this day. So, you know, I like feel good disco. I think ultimately, but uh, I didn't. Yeah, I guess I was playing piano when I was little for a little while. Oh, for real! Um, awesome. Yeah, I had piano lessons huh. at uh, Calcutta School of Music, and uh, I don't know why I stopped, but I was definitely playing reasonably well for like a six or seven year old. All right. And then one day I just decided I didn't want piano lessons anymore. And I was singing in the school choir from that point on until I saw someone play drum. Yeah. And uh, it was this kid named Alex and he was playing drums with the choir. And uh, I was fascinated with the, with the coordination of the instrument. And uh, I then proceeded to air drum every day for a few months. Classic. And then I finally got enough courage to ask my, tell my parents I was interested in the drums. And I think they were pretty confused by, they were like, drums? Since when? 
And then they took me over to Mr. Bakhti, sat down at his drum set. And this was the first time I was actually playing a physical drum set, but they didn't know that I'd been air drumming mm. for about several months before then. And I sat down and I was able to play a beat. And so I think everyone was pretty taken aback. And they were like, oh, how do you know how to do this? And I was like, oh, no, I just know I was watching this kid, but they, they probably thought I was a prodigy or something. But I was like, no, I just kind of learned. And then, uh, and then I took lessons from him for a while. And then I stuck with it. So I took lessons with from Mr. Boxy for about two or three years. And then I've been on my own ever since. Well, and I think I might have uh, met you over at his house once, maybe years uh, ago. Yeah, I must have. Yeah. Um, I, I actually have never have met Mr. Bhakti personally. Oh. So, um, Were you really? No, yeah. Well, we've never met, not personally. I've seen him around, of course. Oh. My relationship with the Kolkata music scene was always very fleeting. So it was, right. you know, I met, I met random people and got really close to them out of the blue. And, you know, a lot of people you think I'd know. But you played with the, with the, with Kochuda for a minute. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. He was like my first mentor. I apprenticed with him like very, very intensely for three years. Right. Yes. I remember that. I saw y'all at, um, was it the U.S. the jazz club at the USIS? Yeah, and uh, that was a big one for me. I must have been twelve or thirteen at the time. Really? Huh? Yeah, I saw y'all, and that band was great. And then that that was all very formative for me, actually. So, yeah, join the club, man. Those were the most formative years of my life, really. And yeah. those were also the last years in my last years in India before I moved back. Europe. That's right, and then and then you went off to Berlin. I, you went off to school in Germany, and I, I remember I, I told Jaiva this actually, but uh, you also were feature in a thought that goes through my head often. When I was a little bit older, maybe when I was playing shows with with Skinny Alley's uh, uh, New Year's Eve, uh, Christmas Eve yeah. configuration, which is their more their top forty uh, party avatar. Yeah. And uh, I was playing drums with them and we were learning all this music. And at the time, there was a recording that you'd sent by you and your band from maybe your graduation or something. Really? Some sort of recital that you had, that you had a recording of. Do you remember this? That um, It had come back. And it was a recording of, of one of your performances that we were listening to, that you'd sent. Really? I didn't even know yes. about this. Jesus. Um, and we were listening to a recording of yours. And uh, I remember Jeshri, it's, I think it was a live performance. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you. Yeah. Or it might have been a studio recording. Yeah. And I remember Jeshri commenting on the drummer's time being very good. <laughs> really? And uh, yes. And she, she's like, this drummer has very good time. And I remember thinking, I was like, do I have very good time? <laughs> Classic. It was in the middle of rehearsal. I was sitting at the drum. And then from that point on, I became very hyper aware of whether Jayashree thought I was rushing or dragging or um, whether, you know, my time felt good. And I still think about that to this day when I play drums sometimes. I'm like, I wonder if Jayashree would think I was rushing. Dang, I'd be, you know? I'd, I'd, I'd be so curious to know which recording this involves because I've, I've been super I've, privileged with drummers. I've always managed to scam myself into bands with some of the best so uh, I'm super curious which particular recording this was. Yeah, this was probably like, this must, this had to have been in like 2003 or 2004. Huh. And uh, yeah, it's, but that thought crosses my mind very often when I'm playing shows and stuff. Like when I'm like unsure of what's going on. I'm like, I wonder if I'm rushing right now. I wonder if Jayashree would think I'm rushing right now. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And then it's it weirdly tied to, tied to you. Dude, that is, 
That is amazing. I, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to feel honored, but I kind of do now. Yeah, it was... Uh, Probably hijacking it, but uh, it, it's that's <laughs> such an amazing story. It's funny how the law of association works. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Th thanks for sharing that, mate. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, here's a question that some of my listeners will be interested in. Mm -hmm. Some some of my listeners who are not familiar with the, well, urban Indian culture, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about the sounds you grew up around in your home, in Calcutta, mm -hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure some of my listeners were expecting you to quote Indian classical and Bollywood names, right? Except, except you, you know, you didn't. And it's a very different. Um, that sounds lame, but you know, very different music you grew up around. Right. You want to tell us um, a little more about how that happens? Why? I mean, it's interesting. You know, forgive me for going off on the tangent. We had um, our uh, common friend Omidatta on the podcast mm -hmm. recently. Uh, a very specific topic we talked about. It was actually like a, uh, an interview for a thesis I'm writing on uh, D for Brother. Mm -hmm. And um, we go into this conversation about how Calcutta has its had its very specific cliques, you know, like one part of Calcutta had a completely different musical culture than the other. Mm -hmm. And um, sounds like to me, uh, and I have no clue about this, but I would take a wild guess that you grew up around central Calcutta. I grew up, um, well, I, I was in Halipur uh, for um, the first 12 or 13 years of my life. And then I ended up in, yeah, in like um, right down in the middle on Little Russell Street off of Park Street. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, so you want to tell our listeners a little about how growing up in Calcutta is and the different kinds of music you grew up around in a city like that? Yes. I think, I think specifically when I grew up, there was, you know, there's a music scene. And uh, there's all the musicians that are very closely tied together from, you know, everyone's kind of uh, centered around uh, someplace else. Mm. I'm, I'm speaking specifically from being in my teenage, mid to late teenagers and being a musician at that point already. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I guess I started gigging and stuff from the time I was like 14 or 15. But um, there's that, un I had the unique experience of, of being around a lot of musicians so that informed my uh, listening is I, I'd be listening to what people would give me to listen to. But, you know, we also had MTV and Channel V in the early to mid nineties became, you know, pretty prominent for all of us. Right. And, and this was like the Asian, M Asian MTV and Channel V would play most of the popular music of the day from across the world, mostly American and Western music. And so, yeah. you know, we, I guess we grew up listening to what was popular at the time. I don't know how different it would have been for you because you were maybe about what five to eight years older than me. I'm forty-three. How old are you? Oh, so you're you're about seven years. I'm thirty. I, I turned thirty-seven this month. So yeah, I, I still got to got a glimpse of complete like pre-globalized India, like like zero TV, no cable, nothing. Right. That's yeah. And, and I, by the time I was old enough, it was it was very it was very much there. I think I. I vaguely remember a time where there were only two channels on TV, which was Dudashan 1 and 2. There you go. Then we had Star TV and then we got more exposed to Western culture. So, but Calcutta as a place was already very receptive to, you know, all of this stuff to begin with. And people have an interest in culture and literature and music. And so right. I was exposed to a lot of that stuff just by default. But um, then, yes, we had the music channels and then internet dial up and then 
that for me was a was the real escape where I was able to really figure out what I like with unlimited access to beautiful information you know so there was that yeah there was three things for me it was like yeah what we were being fed by the media just by whatever whoever was deciding what ended up on television was Mm-hmm. and then there was just like the default music that was playing on the radio a lot of it being western music and then access to the internet but i don't know what other cities in india are like in terms of what everyone gravitates towards but there definitely seemed to be a pretty unique um, attitude towards music in calcutta because yeah i don't know like all the venues had there's like this culture of jazz with all the older people right most of the prominent jazz musicians you know would have started out in calcutta Yeah, interesting in there. Yeah, and then, you know, there's also like be like Mr. Bakshi was into like the doors, so there's that whole side of things. Mm. Like oh. Grateful Dead and stuff and then yeah, I don't know. It it definitely played a role in my development though. Like it's hard to put a finger on it though because I just was doing so many different things. Yeah, it's a kind of thing you don't really consciously take notice of and like I mean even me it's only way later in hindsight that I noticed what an unconventional musical um uh, backdrop I grew up against. Uh in, in my case again it's slightly different since my uh stay in Calcutta was always a little fleeting but even then it's on right. honestly it's only been when I it's it was only when I was confronted with uh what most white people really think indian boys grow up around yes that i realized hey hang on that is really why did i not grow up around things you think i grew up around and that's when that's when the whole right investigation started so um, yes i mean it's it's hard for me to say because like i was very impressionable so like you know whatever you know gyan and jayashree and amit would show me yeah you know gyan took a lot of uh, interest in like sharing interesting things for me sometimes you know we'd be hanging out in the evening and he would like come over like and like have you heard this do you know this record and he would like mm-hmm. point me in the direction of things that would then like open up a lot of doors for me so i owe a lot to specifically those sorts of people like yan and jashri and other people that sort of mentored me including my former bandmates that i played music with you always like sharing yeah and i don't know if that's unique to calcutta but uh I'd say I could attribute most of my taste and interest in music to those initial like nudges in those directions. Beautiful man. By people like Jan that you know Jan put me on to he like um I think he might have put me on to D'Angelo weirdly. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me. And then that ended up being, you know, pretty formative for me. He might have been I might have been like have you heard of like this bass player Pino Palladino and he's like yeah, have you listened to this uh, D'Angelo album and that became like, you know, like um almost like a standard listening thing for me which heavily influenced all of my musical choices from that point on so um there's definitely a lot of that in calcutta though it's like the people sort of steering you in a direction or offering you like their opinion on what they think is cool and why they do um i should have called my dad to ask him this gentleman's name but uh, when i was younger there was a person at the usis jazz club who um copied a bunch of uh, classic jazz on two cassettes and gave them to my dad for me. Uh-huh. So it was uh forget his name I should have asked. Um this would have been in t- 1999. But he burned like Miles Davis kind of blue onto a cassette for me and perfect. You know, a bunch of seminal jazz records and like that happens in Calcutta. I don't know if that's like a good culture in other cities, but those were the kinds of things that like 
helped me figure myself out. I don't know if I would have turned out the way I did if I'd lived somewhere else, you know? Yeah, very interesting. Because people seem to take an interest in someone that has potential and be like, let's nurture this talent and like, let's show him what's cool, you know? And I, I definitely got that from people that I look up to. You reckon that, that culture still exists in Calcutta? I have no idea because I haven't been back in Calcutta really as an adult for more than two weeks to a month at a time, maybe yeah, yeah. once every couple of years. So I don't know anymore. I, I assume it must be very different because the rest of the world mm-hmm. is very different than when I was younger anyway. So. Well said. I don't know. But yeah, that, that's, a, that's unique to Calcutta, I think. I definitely feel like I was uh, raised in the musical sense by a community. That's beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gyan, Gyan was the original guru in that specific. He definitely was, yeah. yeah. He definitely was. Um, More tuned into what was happening musically yeah. around the world. Yeah, it's it amazing. Was, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. it is It is not funny how how much knowledge that man and how, how with it and how informed he was of the stuff going on in global music. Yeah. I mean, I've had uh, principals of music schools being nowhere close to his level of awareness and knowledge with <laughs> oh, and this was a guy who used to uh, you know had a day job running a hotel right and it was I, I never I'd figured out how he managed to do that and he was just generally very open-minded about music and like receptive to all kinds of things which I definitely take with me um, you know he would he was just interested in so many different kinds of music and didn't yeah. seem to have a any like preconceived ideas about yeah mind cool you and this this was cool. pre-internet so all the information all the media right. you were you needed to keep yourself informed up it was all either print or vhs cassettes and you know their house used to be this huge archive of like like a library of all these cassettes and cds later on yes. CDs and these magazines i mean the amount of resources like finances he invested into just stoking this passion of his is remarkable yes. it's the kind of thing you don't really see anymore these days it's yep. a, a true patron and a practitioner at the same time yes absolutely so, uh, yeah, yeah i owe that family a lot uh, in in so many yeah you and a, f- a few uh, a few thousand musicians the sings and amita yeah yeah i mean they don't call them the first family of indian independent music for nothing so yeah Totally with you there, man. Yes, that's true. Um, at which point did you realize that music is what you want to do for a living? Um, I, I think I was kind of steered in the direction of it. Uh, weirdly, again, going back to USIS. So I don't know if your listeners are aware, but the United the United States Information Service, is that what it is? Right, yeah. Um, the, the USIS in Calcutta housed uh, a jazz club. Mm-hmm. that met every weekend and would listen to recordings or watch a documentary or watch live performance. And uh, when my parents saw that I was like vaguely interested in jazz, they started sending me there every weekend. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was every weekend. It might've been at some point and then it might've slowly sort of dissipated, but there'd occasionally be live performances there, including one that I saw you in with the Orient Express. Still can't get over that one. Yeah. That was great. Cheers, man. And then, uh, and then I think, yes. And then there was like the United States jazz ambassadors that came down. Yeah. And at the time I must've, I must've been in class seven. So age 12 or 13, I attended a workshop with this band called Prime Meridian. It was a bunch of like New York, uh, jazz people. Yeah. Really and, good. uh, they had a jam session and I, I very sheepishly put my hand up and wanted to play drums with them at some point. It was like a workshop and they were doing a jam session. 
Good man. And we played, I think we played like a Herbie Hancock song or something. Mm. And at the end of that, the drummer who still lives in New York, Willard, he he pointed my parents in the direction of maybe, you know, maybe you should like uh, encourage him to keep playing and like, you know, you can send him off to college to do this in college. And so that stuck with them. Huh. And they were, you know, they, uh, he, he was like, yeah, your son's pretty talented. You should, you know, you should, uh, encourage him to keep doing this and you know maybe you can consider sending him to music school when he's old enough and so they kind of, i think they kind of took him seriously and and uh kept an eye on me and in short i was like staying focused on prioritizing music mm. and uh when i was old enough i applied and i guess it all just i got a scholarship to go to berkeley so it all depended on that so awesome. i didn't do very well in my uh my class 12 boards by the way i did miserably. so at that point my parents were like, you know, if you don't get into music school, you're in trouble. Huh, interesting. Because your your uh, high school performance hasn't been good enough to guarantee you a place in a good college here. So I hope you're serious about this music thing. And so then that worked out. So hang on. So your parents actually kicked your ass to make sure you put in the best you have into music so you could go to music college. Well, it, I mean, there's always that. I don't know if this is unique to India, but I, I feel like it is. There's always like you have to have the plan B. You know, so right. you better finish school and get good grades so you can go to college just in case this other thing doesn't work out. And I definitely messed up uh, all prospects of my plan B because uh, I got, like, I think I, I'm not embarrassed to say it, but I think I got my low 70s in my ISC, which is definitely like not good enough to get into like one of the better colleges. So at that point, I was like, all right, I, you know, if I stay in India, I'm going to, I'm not going to be going to Xavier's or St. Stephen's or whatever people go to. So at that point, I was like, okay, so I took a year off and then I focused on just doing music because as you can imagine, like high school in India is all, uh, and it's, it's all, um, consuming. Yeah. So since I didn't have, since I had the time now to focus on the music, I spent a good year of just like prioritizing playing music. And then I applied to Berkeley and got a scholarship. So I, Ended up going. That is a refreshing, a refreshing twist to uh, what, what. It was the only option I had at that point, and so that made it much more urgent. I was like, "Well, if I stay here, I'm not going to do very well, so I should probably focus on this thing." Interesting. Well, yeah. I, I think the world is really glad that's the that's the manner in which how things panned out. I am anyway. Yeah, but my parents were always very encouraging, and like you know, they recognized that I probably had some talent and it was worth nurturing. So that is so um, awesome. They, they were great, so, so definitely. Awesome. Yeah. How, how, how did it feel when you first arrived in Boston? Oh, I, I actually hated it. I'm not going to lie. I didn't like it for the first year because uh, I, Berkeley has this weird system of like uh, rating you when you come oh, in. Oh, yeah, yeah. They give you like these ensemble ratings and... Uh, yeah. And it's all based on sight reading. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I thought, and of course, and I guess everyone has this experience. Most of the kids come from wherever they come and like, you know, in their hometown or their neighborhood or their city or whatever, they're like, you know, like the best at what they do. Mm. And then you come there and then there's like a whole bunch of kids that are way better than you. And so you feel like very small. Yeah. Um, not that, not that I felt that way, but for me, it was more the rating system, which were, you know, I got like twos and threes, which meant I was playing in a low level ensemble when I started. Um, so much so that there was two drummers in the ensemble and I ended up playing bass because I was like, I already know how to do all this. So wow. I was like, can I play bass? 
And so they let me play bass in this ensemble and uh, I didn't like it because I was like, if this is what music school is like, I don't really like it. So I did a year and then ended up taking a semester off, considering not returning actually, um, because I didn't like, you know, I was like, this is like not that great. And then I ended up going back and that's when I met like my circle of friends and then started to feel more like I was getting something out of it. But yeah, the first year, the ratings, because my ratings were low, I wasn't doing, you know, I just felt like I wasn't getting much out of like the ensemble, that sort of thing. It just felt like I wasn't learning anything. And then when I went back after that semester off, that's when I met, you know, all my people and started to feel more like I was part of, you know, I found people that shared the same interests as me. Interesting. Tell us a little more. Yeah. Tell us a little more about that semester that you took off. How did you, how did you occupy yourself? So I came back to, I went back to India and uh, a bunch of my high school friends had a theater company called Tin Can Productions. Oh yeah, sure, I know them. Yeah. And uh, at the time, Jaiva actually, our, our mutual friend Jaiva was uh, playing drums for this um, experimental theater production thing we're doing in an old house in Calcutta. And uh, I, these all, the Tin Can people are all friends of mine that I've known since uh, class one, since first grade. So um, I was brought in to do like sound design and like music and things like that. And so it was me and Jaiva and a bunch of these like theater kids, some of whom are pretty well known now. And uh, so I spent that semester in India working on that theater production and just kind of clearing my head a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and playing some shows in Calcutta with my friends, with my band Cognac, with uh, Taj and Rohan, and you might know some of those people. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so and and playing shows with uh, with Gyan and Jeshri as well. So I did that for about six months and then went back to college, and that's when I finally felt settled in America. So it took me about two years to really, you know, get my to wrap my head around it. Because also at the time when I started Berkeley, I was one of maybe four or five South Asian. Mm. In the entire college? Yes, there was only maybe five or six of us at most. Wow. And uh, from India there, there were, of course, there were people of South Asian descent, but mm. uh, I think there was only four, five, maybe five, six of us. Yeah. And so it just, yeah, it just felt like a weird, it, it, I didn't feel like I fit in quite as much mm. initially. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I came back and then when I went back, I met a bunch of people that I love and I'm still friends with all of them. Awesome. Yeah. But th- that semester back was good. It really cleared my head and some different stuff and felt good about going back. I asked for a specific reason because it's pretty common, especially in the first year of college or any first year of your professional um, life as a musician. It's pretty common to, you know, kind of hit your head against the wall. Personally, I think taking a break like you did is one of the best solutions to go with. A lot of the clients and students I work with are coach artists and musicians. They're always, um, I, I, I kind of compare it to a rest day between workouts. People tend to think, uh, you know, just working constantly is what leads to exponential and constant growth. Whereas uh, we tend to forget that the rest you need from the work you're doing for it to kind of expand on its own, give it a, give it a chance to expand without just always chasing it is equally important so um right i was wondering if uh, your experiences were similar yes absolutely that distance definitely i think because i think with uh, with indians and south asian power attitude towards education there's like an emphasis on like 
on, on, on qualification and like going yeah. into the program. Yeah. And I think that's what it felt like when I went there. I felt like I was going there to get a degree and that everything would fall into place. But I think with like mm. creative fields specifically, if you go to school and you don't know exactly what it is that you want to do, yeah. you can get lost very quickly, especially at a place like Berkeley, which has unlimited resources. Mm, exactly. I have mixed feelings about my time there for sure. But one thing I will say is you have access to everything. Like literally, you, that's, the, that's the one good thing about that school is whether it's certain faculty or it's the facilities or just the resources in terms of information. Um, I don't think any other music school comes close to the diversity of uh, inf- like thought and information you can access there. Interesting. Um, because there's, you know, pretty high level jazz kids. And then there's also like other stuff happening. There's music education and music therapy. And there's like the whole pop scene. There's a whole very, you know, very tight gospel scene. There's like the metal kids. There's like the rock kids. And like, it's, I think it's the only place in the world that's like that. There are other music schools, but I, I don't think it's quite as diverse and there's quite as many people operating at such a high level in so many different areas of music. So mm. I think if you don't know what you do and you go to a place like that, sorry. No, I was just um, saying, and it's very hands-on, you know, that, that's the one thing. It's I, very I, hands-on. Yeah. And so if you go there expecting that the curriculum will offer you a path, you mm. are lost. And that happens to a lot of people that go there. They don't last because, you know, you just expect there to go there and just be told what to do. And I kind of went there expecting that's what it would be like because that's what our education system is kind of like. It's very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, at least mine, my experience was, I don't know what high schooling and college is like in India now. I'm sure it's changed, but, you know, you just have these few paths you go down. And so I wasn't ready to just do what it is that I wanted to do and figure out how to use that system to get what I wanted out of it. So when I came back, I realized, you know, I was like, okay, these are the things I'm more interested in and how do I get these out of that education system over there? So mm-hmm. that's when I came back. And I think the whole point of that experience for me personally was I, I learned very little out of the curriculum at the school. I learned more from just interacting with people there. So whether it was teachers, uh, specific teachers that like, you know, took me under their wing and mentored me more than anything else. Um, whether it was that or, you know, finding a community of people that shared my interests and then growing with that community of people. So that's what I got out of the experience, you know, and, and, the, and I could have just been in the general vicinity of Berkeley and not attended the school and got that as well, you know, mm. but so, um, and, and I have many friends, like my, my partner in my studio, uh, attended Berkeley for a, for a semester or two, and then just stuck around and got the same thing out of it, I think because he's from Boston. So, you know, for me, uh, the, the thing I got out of being at Berkeley and with that, when I felt I was getting the most out of it was when I figured out what it is that I wanted and then how to get it from the people I had access to, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But that's what that semester off gave me, gave me perspective, priorities. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Well, what happens then? I mean, college is one thing. Um, mm-hmm. comes with its own challenges and then you're done and then all of a sudden everything changes oh yeah and uh, I stayed an extra was it an extra year after I graduated or maybe I want to say it was two years actually so I stayed two years in Boston and that was interesting because by the end of the second year like the whole landscape of places in Boston changes because it's a college town 
So it's it's very difficult to be there and feel like anything's familiar because everyone leaves. Right. You know, most of the people there leave. So I stuck around for another two years and then met a whole bunch of other people who I'm also still associated with, like Nick, who I play drums with, and a, you know, a bunch of my other friends. You're friends with Nick Hakim? Yeah, I play drums with him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. No, I'm a huge fan, by the way. Shout out to Nick Hakim if he's listening. Yeah, he's, he might be. Fanboying you here. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. He, yeah, so like I met that whole crew of people when I stayed that extra year. And uh, yeah, I guess like, that's what I, I guess that's how things worked out for me. I just prioritized just making friends and like trying to expand my, uh, my worldview by meeting as many different types of people as I could, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if that answered your question or if I was just rambling. Sorry. No, 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 not, not at all, man. The, the, the whole idea is to ramble together, so absolutely. <laughs> but, but that does um, kind of, I don't know if this is related, but I would like to pick your brain on the fact that um, the roster of artists um, your CV brings with it, your artist portfolio is impeccable. You know, the quality oh. that it reflects. Thank you. And that kind of cuts straight to the chase. It just speaks... Uh, loads for the quality of work uh, you do and you're actually very humble in the manner you relate your story oh thank you uh, but uh, your collaborators are creme de la creme and you're one of the very few um, musicians who uh, are of immigrant background like you say you're not of South Asian descent who grew up in the States or in the West but you literally have the whole immigrant story behind you yes and then you go and you for lack of a better term you kind of make it to a point where you're playing with these really wonderful artists. And my question to you is, why you? And uh, that came out wrong. <laughs> but what, what do you think it is? No, that totally came out wrong. What, what it is, these amazing artists, uh, what got you the gig? If you if you were you know talking to your younger self today, what would you tell him? Uh, he, that actually doesn't make sense either because you got the gig anyway. <laughs> but uh, what do you think you, you know, what got you those gigs? Well, I guess I haven't thought about it. I, I will say that the people that I'm most commonly associated with musically, like uh, like Nick or, or Laura Lee, mm-hmm. who goes by Ampersand, who I played with for a long time, yeah. I, think, I think I'm just, we're all really good friends. So mm-hmm. um, I guess maybe I'm, I'm, I play with Nick because we're friends, but... Uh, I've never really been involved with a with a musical project for too long that I or, or an artist for too long that I wasn't very close friends with. So interesting. So like like Empress of who I played with for a long time, you know, she was my roommate all through college, and you know, we're very close. We're like siblings almost. So um, I th- maybe I'm just lucky that I <laughs> happened to meet people that uh, I. You know, I get along with as a person that happen to be cool musicians and have uh, careers that they took me along uh, for the ride on. I don't know, but you say lucky, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I believe that. I mean, I, you know, they have at the risk of quoting a cliche, "Fortune favors the brave." You know, it's, but um, I don't know, man. It seems too much of a coincidence to just attribute it all to luck. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's these are all people that I've um, sort of grown up with musically in some mm. sense, you know? Like we, I, I don't have as much success playing with people 
that hire me to go on a tour or something. I mean, I've done a lot of that, but I feel like I, I tend to, the, the ones that tend to be more successful are the one, at least in terms of a working relationship, are the ones where, you know, close to the person, regardless of whether we work together or not. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, so I, I guess we just share interests musically and that's what ultimately matters the most. And, we, you know, we get along as people and that's also what matters the most. So relationship building? Yes, just being cool and nice and being friends. I, like Nick's band, for instance, feels more like a band because, you know, we're all very good friends too, you know, like... Uh, guitar player Joe in his band and I lived together for a while and you know I've known Jake through college and played music with Jake too and we've just been doing it we've just been around each other so much that it makes sense Mm -hmm. and I don't know how well I would fare in other professional situations Uh, this one just seems to work for me Um, but yeah I don't know it's just like they're all just my friends and then things just unfolded the way they did is how I see it yeah, no, it actually makes total complete sense. I, th- I think the whole paradigm of like being a you know an independent musician has changed immensely in the past couple of generations. Yeah, it used to be that you know some of my older teachers. Um, I, I study drums part time with a gentleman called Phil Maturano. I don't know if you know him. Mm, it sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah, he he used to say back in the day saying someone's a nice guy was the worst insult you could give to a musician. Yeah. yeah this back in the 80s, you know. And that's that's changed. I mean, that, and that this is this is a real thing. This isn't a joke. People would actually it was almost like, you know, almost like people being nice would be misinterpreted as lack of skills or competence or something. And that's that's a paradigm that's completely changed. Yeah. It's quite all the way around, you know, no one really cares how good you are anymore unless you have absolutely uh, unless you're that's decently true. behaved or just like a generally okay guy to be around or person to be around. Yes. Um, yeah, because um, you know, at this point we're going I mean and, and, and me and Nick we're very, very close and we're like brothers almost to the point where, you know, we do have our spats and it's it's hilarious. I mean, it's probably exhausting for other people because we have a very crazy dynamic as as friends. We we do fight and get pretty goofy and stuff. So, but I, I guess that's probably why it works. Is we're just all very close. So beautiful. Yeah, I I I'm, I I will say I haven't actively ever pursued uh, like the gig thing. It's not like I'm out trying to get gigs as a drummer because I like this whole parallel thing going on. Right? work as an engineer and ran a studio for a long time so you know i'm I'm very fortunate that the one or two playing gigs i have like drum gigs i have are ones that i feel um connected to musically sounds amazing man at this point i'm not actively pursuing like drum gigs outside of what i get to do it feels like i i am a part of it and so i feel happy and involved and i feel connected to this music so I feel okay doing that gig and going out on tour, but as I'm getting older, I'm like more focused on just like engineering and stuff. And that's what I'm also more interested in. So I'm fortunate that I have that situation. Yeah. You know, I'm guessing it's the kind of thing which keeps you grounded. Just, you know, having that counterbalance to uh, a live gigging Mm -hmm. career. Yes. So yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that that happened. And, uh, and, and I, and I'm lucky that I actually enjoy it. 
you know, it doesn't feel like a chore to play that music because it's, it's music that I really like. I've definitely done gigs with people where, you know, I wasn't really into the music and then it feels like a job. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. With Nick, it doesn't. So maybe that's why it works. It's because I actually enjoy it. And so it's apparent. Yeah, it is apparent, by the way. It is extremely apparent, just FYI. I mean, from an audience's perspective, I was actually just uh, digging into your tiny desk gig a couple of uh, weeks back. Oh, word. Man, you folks sound so. It's like, you know, it's like no one's even thinking that they're just doing and playing and being. It's beautiful. So inspiring. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my... Those are my do. It's it's extremely apparent that you know you it's it's um, at the risk of sounding slightly cheesy. It sounds like a family. Yeah, I'd say so. It's yeah. it's a pretty, you know, Nick's recorded output is very much his own. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'd say like the band has its own distinct um, thing. Sweet. That's that's pretty cool. You want yeah. to tell us a little more about that? How how do those two parallel worlds coexist? Um, you mean like the recorded output and the the live thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because Nick makes most of his music, all of his music really, mostly by himself. He, mm-hmm. he records himself and uh, has a studio. And a lot of his earlier stuff, actually, he, he did at my old studio. But, you know, it's, it's stuff that he sort of puts together on his own. The last record he did it had a lot more drums on it. Mm-hmm. The earlier stuff before that is either you know, programmed or samples and stuff like that. So, um, and some live drums, but the last record he did, I played drums on a decent chunk of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more that he just kind of like works on the music by himself and then presents it to the band. And then that gets interpreted. Yeah. That, that's the part I'm more interested in. Like when, when the music is in, in the rehearsal room, how, what's the process with which the band interprets it? Um, I think like, at least three of us in that band have a pretty, uh, pretty solid like jazz background. Mm-hmm. I'd say. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to speak for Jake and Kyle, but uh, I know I certainly I have a pretty strong like at least from being in college I have a pretty strong jazz foundation. So I think it's it's very interpreted the music like Jake does his thing, and I, I can only say that listening to us live and then listening to Nick's records is distinction. Mm. in how the music is approached but um fyi for my audiences when when michel says jake he's referring to jake sherman who or, or by the way is also one of my favorite uh, musicians at the moment sorry i interrupted you there no 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 yeah. that's the, the, he, jake needs an intera- introduction for sure okay. um oh, doesn't need an introduction like yeah just so everyone knows we're talking about Jake. Yeah, Jake I just Sherman. wanted to clarify which Jake we're talking about. It'd be a pity not, not let people know that's the Jake we were talking about. Just so everyone knows we're talking about Jake, Jake Sherman. He's the best. <laughs> yeah, I guess we just like workshop music and then Nick, Nick will bring in new songs sometimes and we try them out. And then whatever sounds like the best at the end of a rehearsal ends up being what we play at a show. But um, it's definitely a distinctive process. He's he's mostly doing all of the recording and production on his own, and then will occasionally be like, "Hey, do you want to put some drums on this?" Um, at least with the last record, like me and Kyle and him went up to a studio and tracked some stuff, and then we did some drums at my studio. But the, most of the work is happening in his head, and because he's pretty self-contained that way as an artist, though. So. Gotcha. Yeah, and then the live thing is just like, here's the song. What do you guys want to do with it? And we kind of listen to the record, the recording, and then interpret it 
and then that's its own thing. So, so do you get like, uh, do you work with any sheets, or do you get your recordings before? No, not at all. I haven't looked at a sheet. No one's handed me a lead sheet in years. Excellent. I like the sound of that. No, we just we just listen to the recordings. He'll send us like, and this is with most people I play with. I get like, you know, an email with the songs, and we just listen. Gotcha. And then show up, and everyone's done their homework, and we rehearse. You know. Perfect. So I'm sure Jake Jake writes charts, so maybe he like learns the chords. But yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, how much in advance do you usually get to listen to the to the music and prepare yourself for it? A good amount. Um, you know, because Nick sends me stuff that he's working on. So I'm usually familiar with whatever is going on in general. So, but for yeah, if we have a tour coming up, there'll definitely be an email with you. We're going to do these new songs, and then they're in there. That Nick hasn't ever given us chart or chord charts. <laughs> that hasn't happened since. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I love the side of that. Yeah. Um, and would you say that's been the general pattern of most of the collaborations and most of the bands you've played in in New York and in most of your circles? Definitely, at least for me personally, no one gives yeah. no one's given me a chart in a while, so it's more like just learn the music and like in, internalize it. Yeah, but those are also because I'm involved more with just like consistent band projects, right. where we're like learning someone's music and then doing our putting our own spin on. Yeah, this gets talked about a lot, especially since um, I'm not sure if you've, um, uh, you probably haven't, but I've been um, uh, doing guest faculty stints back in India for a long time now, every now and then. Mm. And it's interesting, uh, like from what, mostly in Europe as well, people are, ten, except for big band gigs or a specific niche, uh, niches like classical music, of course, where written music is so inherently part of the tradition and the entire process. You can't not have anything to do with it. Right. But except for those specific niches where all forms of contemporary music, people are coming away from sheets, uh, increasingly more so, uh, with the advent of the ease with which you can just make a quick audio recording, right? Right. It's interesting, though, when I, uh, when I observe contemporary music education, the way it's being gone about in India, it's like side-treating and all these methods of teaching, which in in the West, in the meantime, are under severe scrutiny with regards to the relevance. Yeah. Or at least the manner in which the relevance has been said. It's it's being sold, it's being sold as like the holy grail. And I find that a little irksome almost um, when I observe some of the colleagues. Uh, it's almost like in a lot of circles, contrary to the way things were when we were around in India. Now you can actually go get a college education in India. Right. In music. Yes. And the pedagogical methods, though, are the way they were when we arrived in the West, like uh, like a decade uh, behind. And I don't understand exactly what the point of that is. Well, I, 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 of course, I haven't been back since, you know, there's been a bunch of these schools that have popped up all over India that are not. Some of them are affiliated with, you know, schools in the U.S. I know there's Indeed. a couple that are affiliated with Berkeley that are teaching yeah. in a Berkeley curriculum. Right. Um, I think it doesn't hurt to um, approach music from that side of things, like learning how to read charts. It's, it's really more a stylistic thing, you know. I can exactly. I can almost certainly guarantee you that, um, like, Kurt Cobain didn't know how to read a lead sheet, you know. Yeah, I'm checking that. So. I mean, so I think it's important that like the curriculum doesn't steer individuals away from what it is they want to do musically. Thank you so much for saying that. Because at music school too, you know, there's definitely a lot of kids that weren't trying to play jazz. So like they were like, why do I have to learn how to read this sheet? Like, 
So mm-hmm. it's definitely annoying and you do it because you need the credit. But I think it's important to, for people to realize is that just like, as long as you understand that uh, this is something you're learning and if it finds a place in what it is you're trying to do with your music, then sure. But like, yeah, I feel like, yeah, like I had to do some harmony classes and stuff, which were helpful to me um, at Berkeley. But for some kids, I'm like, why does this person need to know what like this fancy chord is? this voicing like they're not but that's still kind of relevant musically right so if, if you want to record your ep someday you know you have the facility with the harmonic background you have to kind of fool around with chords you like the sound of that still is kind of like literally totally and yeah. so it's good to expose yourself to that it's also important to like uh, be aware of how all of it gets into what it is that you're trying to do so i'm i'm nervous about like curriculum in india steering people in the direction of thinking that like this jazz traditional jazz education is somehow relevant to them because it's quite possible that for a lot of them the music they like and the people they look up to don't have any of that like especially if you're into like rock and there's nothing wrong with that that's oh. something people have to exactly sorry go ahead no no i was just saying it's also important to know that traditional jazz was not based on written music in the first place right yes I think that's that's what I mean when I got to Berkeley. I was like doing all these stuff, all these things, and like taking these classes that didn't seem relevant to what it was that I wanted to do. Exactly. But once I figured out what I wanted to do, then I was able to get, you know just you know not prioritize certain things. You know, so yeah. so I think you have to be careful like prescribing curriculum to creative people because in India specifically I, I'm nervous that you know all these kids that would probably have been like some singer that probably be like a music rock singer it's not going to be learning standards and, and like be a subpar jazz singer instead mm-hmm. of an exceptional rock singer that's where the heart actually is but because it's stunning they feel like jazz is more academic and I should do this does yeah. that make sense? yeah absolutely I definitely felt that I mean my parents still say stuff like that like don't forget uh, how to play jazz you're doing all this other stuff and I'm like yeah, <laughs> I'm just not a jazz musician though you know yeah. so it's okay yeah and like that's that's the danger of music school if if you know if you if you're not like pretty set in what it is that you want to do it's easy to get like sent down a path that's not where your heart actually is especially if you're in your 20s you know what I mean like mm-hmm. I think once you're at school, it's important to be there and know what it is that you're trying to get from college, a college education. Indeed. I think the younger generation are lucky. Like, you know, if you're into music, just make sure your education is giving you what you need to be better at that music because it's possible also that you could not go to school and still... Yeah, and we happen to know uh, examples of musicians have gone on to very successful yeah. careers. Uh, having done that, like Juvraj is a very good example of that. Yeah, or just look at just even contemporary pop music in general. Like how many of our yeah. favorite pop stars went to music school? Most of them did. So it's important to keep that in mind. Very true. You know, for me, the main the main incentive for going to school in the US was to potentially stay here after the fact. That's the that was also why you know when I was initially not having the best time in Berkeley, I considered not continuing but then i was like well if i finish and i get a degree then i could potentially get to stay on in america yeah see that know? that is a whole different dimension altogether that needs to be taken into yeah. consideration when you know yeah and so that's when i was like okay let me make the most of this because i i need to finish this to stay here i want right. to stay here right so familiar yeah the right so you know, beating the system right um I would, with your permission, uh, though, share a few thoughts um, 
Yeah. Uh, in addition to what you refer to with, you know, curriculum and music education and the possible conflicts that might arise between through artistic development or artist development and, uh, you know, getting privy to the system. Um, especially with something like sight reading, for example, you know, Berkeley's notorious for grading musicians solely on the basis of the sight reading skills in the beginning, mm-hmm. completely oblivious to, you know, what other skills often bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of uh, Indian educators all, you know, go all gung-ho about sight reading now all of a sudden. It's like the one thing. And I think it's great. I think it's important to talk about something, especially in the landscape like India, where sight reading isn't hasn't always been an inherent part of its musical culture to give it a more global playing field. I get that. But it'd be a pity to do it with the backdated perspectives of 10 years back instead of just, you know, going with the updated version of it already. Like, you could, this is what sight reading is. This is how relevant it is to your journey, depending on what you want to do as an artist. Make sure you invest the right amount of time into it. Right. Make sure you don't overdo it, but also make sure you know enough about it to not feel lost if it ever comes across it during your course of your work or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, some people need that skill more than others. Like, if you're playing classical music and you want to be in an orchestra, you probably need to have, like, exceptional reading skills. Right, but who's who's building no? a classical career in India, though, as a classical... In the, that's that's. I mean, I hope, I hope we have some good classical musicians coming out of there but yeah if you are then if that's what you're doing then sure but if, if it's not what you're trying to do it's only fine and not be good at sight reading um also sight reading for drummers is very different than it is for say a guitar player or something you're not only reading or a piano player or a piano player you're not only reading rhythmic notation you're reading m- melodic stuff too so um for me i'd say it's been a really long time since i've needed to utilize those skills yeah. Um, and just to clarify to listeners, no one's demonizing sight reading here either. No. But uh, it's it's not a holy grail. No. Um, did I hijack the conversation? Not at all. No. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd say it really depends on what it is you're doing. I think a lot of jazz musicians probably need to have. You want to be a high level jazz musician. That's what you want to do. Then it goes without saying that you're probably going to develop your sight reading skills regardless because of how you practice. And, um, what you're transcribing. I would take you a know. minute. I, I, I would say, um, uh, yeah, I mean, often. But I, I, I'm kind of going to refute that too, because some of the most high-level jazz musicians I've known and worked with are not great side readers at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, at the very least, like the ability to read like a... Like a chart, yeah, like lead sheet. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But like, uh, like I mean, some of the in Germany, when you say really good sight readers, like some of the people I know, they literally read like uh, you know, you know, four way. Like some of the folks I've seen, they literally can play like string quartet arrangements on the piano, which is you know, humanly, technically, it isn't even possible. But they find some kind of manage to do it. Um, but um, yeah, that just um, I guess the point I'm getting at is. It's a, it is a very specialized skill and it's important to kind of figure out how big a role it plays in one's uh, specific niche. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally quite uh, wary of, uh, of curriculum in general. So, yeah, um, totally with you. There. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, if, I, if I was uh, coaching kids, I, I tend to just be like, you know, what, it is that you, what is it that you want to do? And it's, it's all very subjective. So, you know, I think someone that just wants to be a songwriter uh, that has like reasonably good 
skills on their instrument is probably better off prioritizing learning like reading literature you know what i mean that's yeah expand your worldview and read more books and poetry and like you know that's what you know that's when you have something to say so so true and like even with with me like i i know how to do so much stuff on the drums that i will never have uh an opportunity to play on the gigs that i have you know mm-hmm. so sometimes i think of it as almost like wasted time in the practice room that i why do i know how to do this like why do i have this crazy chop that i if i played this on any of the gigs i have mm-hmm. i'd probably get fired why do i know how to do this and so it's the same with like sight reading and stuff you know um almost superfluous stuff that's not going to find its way there's no harm in expanding your world by learning things and uh, eventually you sort of distill everything into what you need but the sooner you can get to that point the better mm. it just it depends on what you're trying to do musically and i think that's what people lose sight of a lot and i, I hope mm. the schools in india are prioritizing what the kids want to do with themselves musically yeah helping them get there instead of like telling them what's right and what's wrong. They loosely had that experience at Berkeley, but I also had mentors and teachers there that were, that didn't subscribe to like the curriculum quite as much. And so mm-hmm. those are the people that I learned the most from, actually. You want to tell us a little more about that? Yeah, like um, I studied drums with uh, a handful of great teachers, actually. My first semester was with Kip Haddon, who's a... amazing drummer who played with Weather Report back in the 70s and um I stayed I'm still in touch with him I I stayed connected to him even though I I didn't continue taking lessons from him after my first couple of semesters I um you know we stayed in touch and like I'd go over to his house and we'd like listen to music and stuff so more mentors that just provided guidance mm-hmm. um outside of curriculum so it was like skip and then later i studied with uh, ralph peterson who passed away last year um very famous jazz drummer who was also quite a mentor to me and um gave me a pretty solid like jazz foundation over the course of three or four years you know and again all outside of the curriculum we never touched any of the material i was supposed to do at my proficiency at the end of the semester ever mm-hmm. i would go to class and i know there was like you got to do like you know to to get the grade at that semester you had to do specific snare drum pieces and do some stuff and he was like you've got this you can do that on your own um let's learn this standard you know and then he put on like a joe henderson recording on his big pa speakers in his classroom oh, and just make me play along to it and then be like are you listening to the bass player are you listening to what the trumpet player is doing and then he played trumpet really well so he would sometimes pull out his trumpet and we would just play duo and then he would just give me like actual jazz education you know Sorry. about phrasing and stuff mm-hmm. so i never did any curriculum stuff with him ever uh, and i was in his ensemble as well later on and then another person i learned a lot from was uh Jamie Haddad who is a percussionist who has been Paul Simon's percussionist for a long time now and he taught at berkeley and again similar situation where yeah i met him closer towards the end of my time there but i did his ensemble and you know his focus was more on you know um what is it that you want to do well he actually uh, i met him in like my second last semester i took a class with him and he uh he asked us all it was this it was this class called alternative setups for drum set 
and uh, it's he's a pretty famous percussionist, and so he has all these like prototype instruments that he's designed, and he had this classroom full of insane percussion instruments, like anything you can think of, from like hand drums to like weird frame drums and things like that. And so the class was the only three-hour class I ever took in Berkeley, and maybe eight or nine of us. And uh, we'd spend the first hour setting up a hybrid drum set with anything and everything in the room. So maybe put this wow. kick drum on a stand, and then put this frame drum on your right side, and then put this put this tambourine attached to a kick drum pedal on your li- on your right foot. And then we'd set up this weird drum set that made no sense. And then for the remaining two hours, each person would get a chance to try and play something cool. So you'd have to figure out like a whole new uh, sense of coordination to to play the weird frame drum that's off to the side that where it wouldn't usually be, and like a snare drum that you have to like hit with a kick drum pedal, you know. Sure. And then figure out a way to play a cool groove with this setup. Sounds amazing. So that was an amazing class, but I, I did that class and then like the first time the first day he had each of us play a little bit of drums and then he asked me to stick around after he's like you just wait a second and uh he's like come back and talk to me for a second and he's like he's like where are you from and i was like i'm from india he's like oh i lived in india when i was younger i did he had a fulbright scholarship and was studying uh south indian percussion with someone and i for a while when he was he was in his early 20s he's an incredible uh kanjira player actually and frame drum player yeah so He's very intimately aware of our culture and like spent time and like, he's like, you're from there. He's like, cool. And then he was like, you know, you, it seems like you like uh, Jack P. Jeanette a lot. I was like, yeah, because I played some drums in Patel. He was like, well, you know, you should really figure out what it is you're really, really good at and, and focus on that. In his way, he was telling me I'm not like the most amazing jazz drummer. And uh, he was like, you'll probably do better figuring out what it is that you're actually good at. And it helped me like that was a big one for me actually i owe him a lot because i was like yeah actually you know what what am i going to do like graduate school and then try to play jazz in new york city with you know once you graduate school who are you competing with for gigs you know like literally the best jazz drummers in the world so mm-hmm. he was like are you really ready to do is that what you actually want to do or do you have other interests musically so that's when it flipped and then I was like, you know what? I like all kinds of music and I should just focus on doing what I enjoy. Mm. So that's what my private education at Berkeley was like with the teachers I spent the most time with was, I think it's also unique to the drum department mm-hmm. uh, at Berkeley because the drummer, the drum department and most of the drum teachers are also still actively pursuing their own careers um, and gigging. And like they're, they're all teachers, but they have, pretty high profile gigs like Jamie plays with Paul Simon and you know, Terry Lynn Carrington was there and uh, the Anthony Parks taught there when I was there and um, you know, Francisco Mela and Ralph Peterson and uh, Tony Thundersmith who was playing with Lou Reed at the time. Um, so the, the, the community of drummers at Berkeley is definitely much more nurturing and more real world um, more yeah just more real world and like um accommodating to different people's taste and stuff I, I don't know if i can say the same for the piano department or other departments because i wasn't involved but i i definitely felt like it was more of a community and there was more mentoring and like guidance happening than like just learn the 
curriculum. I hear that about drummers generally a lot. Like the, generally, drummers yes. seem to be better at forming communities than most of the absolutely. Yeah, that that's yeah. The, that was the best part. Yeah, mm. and, and that's part of the reason why. I mean, I went to Berkeley initially to do production and engineering, and then when I got there, I was like, you know what? I kind of want to just learn drums because you know I've never really learned the drums like mm. from a like an educational standpoint. I want someone to show me how to do all these things beyond what Mr. Babji showed me as a kid. You know, yeah. and so. Initially, I hadn't planned to keep playing drums. I wanted to shift more into like production and engineering, which I can do now. But um, part of it was that feeling of community, where like everyone, like you know, people like took great pride in like sharing information. So the drum community at Berkeley, I think that's another thing. If you're a drummer, it's I don't know, I can't speak for it anymore, but definitely when I was there, it's probably the best place to be for a drummer. Sweet. Regardless of what you wanted to do stylistically, there's also Dave Desenzo was teaching there, who I think is arguably like the best technician on the instrument. Mm. Um, maybe in the top three, in my opinion, he's unbelievable. And like I, you know, I took private lessons from my second semester after developing pretty severe tendonitis. Oh, sucks. And uh, just like the the insight he has into technique and stuff. So you get all of that at Berkeley. And all people at the top of their game. You know, I, I honestly feel Ralph was like one of the greatest jazz drummers of his time. Um, Ralph Peterson, who passed away last year. And, you know, just to have access to those people, mm-hmm. you know, the curriculum didn't matter at that point. I was like, oh, I'm getting like the best education. I have like someone to show me. I just hang out and like we'd listen to music and go for walks in the park and stuff. That's the stuff that I got the most out of. It. And I hope people are still doing that. I don't know if it's like that anymore, but... The college seems to have changed a lot, but like those were the most important things for me. The one-on-one like personal interaction with teachers. The hang. So I hope that exists in all the, I hope people are prioritizing that, especially in the schools in India. You don't want teachers just spouting like curriculum and like pedagogy or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. However you say that word. You want like real world advice and realistic perspective more than anything else that's what that's what helped me so i hope everyone else is getting that too and yeah. i hope teachers are prioritizing giving that to their students yeah amen to that man yeah i want to respect your time we've been at it for a while and we can I, I, oh. I know for a fact that we could be at it for a while but i also <laughs> as a ferment and want to respect your time so uh, a couple of topics i would definitely want to um, address before we taper off Mm-hmm. Your approach to producing, uh-huh. th- that specific combination of um, being a drummer slash producer or producer slash drummer, how does one affect your approach to the other? Interesting. I mean, I think of myself more as an engineer than a producer. That's really what I'm most interested in is just recording. Uh-huh. So I I mean, I guess people ask me more and more to, to produce and stuff. And it's funny because I'm like, okay. Um, but, uh, I, I, I like recording. And so my, my biggest, I, I guess I got interested in recording when I was younger because I was fascinated with how drums are recorded. So mm. I guess I have, yeah, it comes from, it comes from an interest in recording drums. That's where it started. I don't know how to answer that question. I, yeah, I guess I play drums in a way that I think they should be recorded. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're acutely aware of the sonic aspect to it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, I yeah. think so. I, 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 you know, even even when I'm playing live, you know, there's a lot of things you can't do live that like you can do in a recording process, like processing your microphones a certain way. Mm-hmm. So I've I've always been pretty obsessed with you know how do I make my snare sound like that sample 
but light. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I do approach it that way. Like where, you know, I, for a while I would tune my snare really low and put a bunch of tape on it and tighten the snares and make it sound like a really deep snare sample. That's what I used to do with Ampersal. And people would ask me, like, how does your snare sound like that? And I was like, I don't know. I just try to make it sound like it sounded in this recording I like of a snare drum, you know? Yeah. So, so I guess I do approach it from that perspective. Awesome. So when I'm playing live, I'm trying to make my drums sound more like a recording of a drum set that's being like heavily compressed or something. But, you know, I adjust the way I hit the drums and like, I feel like that, you know, like hitting the drums a certain way limits what you can do technically, but I like the way it sounds. So does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I guess I, I approach Absolutely. them both the same way. And like, I, I spend a lot of time recording drums, recording myself, um, recording other people. So yeah, it's always been something that has been very interesting to me, like capturing drums. And so it's a, it's a very rounded approach to your, your sound that you bring with you to the table. It's not just, uh, it's not just, okay, I'm, I'm the guy who just plays drums and give me, you know, let me add the kit. I'll just do my job and get out of there. There's an entire artistic vision you're actually bringing with yourself. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I share that also with a very close friend of mine named John Mellon, who's a, who's a drummer that lives out here that used to also play with Nick and is involved with a bunch of really cool projects. When we first became friends, we actually became friends because Jamie Haddad, who's been one of the most uh, influential mentors I've had, um, he introduced us because he'd known John since John was a kid. John was actually born in India and plays tabla really well. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, he'd known John. He was like, hey, this kid just got to Berkeley. I know you're on your way out, but you should like be friends with him because I think he would be friends. And uh, John just started playing drums around then. But we would he played drums on Nick's first EP. And yeah, a lot of the emphasis was, you know, he borrowed all my drums and like, you know, he'd like get the kick drum to sound really interesting. So prioritizing how your instrument sounds, especially with drummers, like drummers tend to just use whatever drums, but I'm like, exactly. make the drum sound so good that if you put one mic on it, it's going to sound incredible recording. Exactly. You know? Oh, I mean and I feel like not a, you know, not, a, not a lot of drummers really think about that. They're just like, oh, just put the mic, so why does it sound bad? I'm like, it sounds bad because you and your drums sound bad, you know? <laughs> but like, like nine, 75, if not like up to 90% of the drum sound is really just the drummer and the drum set. You know, like how the drums are being hit and how they've been tuned. And like, I, I, I think that's ultimately what I've focused on, like just focusing on like just making drums sound interesting in the room and then making them sound interesting through a microphone. That's how I approach it as a, that's how I approach engineering as a drummer, especially when I'm recording other drummers. Mm. And then that's how I approach drumming when I'm playing the drums at a gig. And I think about how it comes across as like how I would like it to sound recorded and how do i get that to sound that way while i'm playing so i don't know if that makes sense sorry yeah, that makes absolute sense but, man. i'm totally with you there in fact yeah i could almost record a whole new episode on this if, if I had yeah it's 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 really interesting to me and like i feel like you even see it with like certain engineers that like you know they might do an album with someone and the drums sound amazing and then they do an album with someone else and like why did the drums not sound as good as that other uh, record right. and you're like oh it's the drummer it was the drummer on that record he just yeah. sounded incredible yeah you know and i think that's a lot with mixed music too a lot of the early stuff that john played on sounds the way it does because like i know how much time he put into making those drums sound amazing because they're all my drums and he would like come over and like, tune them and like spend a bunch of time he'd spend a bunch of time like make you know like 
messing with his snare drum to make the rim shot sound interesting, you know? Sweet. Just that sort of thought is not what people put into recordings anymore. And like, I guess people do, of course. Like you, you need time and like, uh, and, and like energy to invest in like making individual things sound good. But I think not enough drummers invest energy into their sound as much as like a guitar player does, you know? Like buying pedals and like working out their tones and stuff, you know. I think drummers should probably be doing that just as much. I I certainly do. So, but I know a lot of drummers that don't. They're just like, oh, I have like eight drum sets, and I'm like, how are you going to find the sound with that many options, you know? Mm, yeah. So I, I yeah, I think that's how I approach it. I was like, I've I've definitely like dialed it down to where like I have, I know what I want to sound like recorded, and I I, I um, approach my kit that way. What makes you and what inspires you to keep at it with that passion in an age where so many people are just out on tour with their, uh, you know, push pads and e-pads and electronic kits and, you know, seem to be happy playing the rest of the career with just that? Well, just to be clear, I actually like that stuff too. Um, mm-hmm. For me, for me, it's all music. So, you know, whatever serves the music in the moment is what you should be doing. So if it's whether it's like you're playing a drum set or you're hitting a push pad, as long as the music is honest and like good, I don't really care. I mean, I listen to a lot of music with no real drums on it. And um, I, I think of like a lot of producers as drummers. And again, another, another person that was, a, was teaching at Berkeley briefly, who is now pretty famous as a drummer is DeAnthony Parks, who I'm not sure if you know him, um, was a, incredible in my, in my opinion one of the most incredible drummers in the world he was teaching at berkeley briefly after he graduated and uh taught a hip-hop repertoire class that i took um the anthony just for listeners replaced john theodore in the mars volta and uh has played drums with a bunch of people from michelle and cello to um mark Rabot and like all these interesting people but he taught this hip hop repertoire class. And uh, at the beginning of the class, they asked everyone who their favorite drummers were. And uh, everyone obviously named, you know, like the, who you would usually name, like from the Vinnie Kaliuta to the whoever else, you know, like this mm-hmm. like standard favorite drummer type of t- conversation. He's like, how come no one said like Jay Dilla or uh, Africa Bambara or, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, why do you not think of those people as drummers? Because ultimately all you're doing is making a beat, mm-hmm. you know? And like a hip hop producer has a feel and they're hearing drums in their head and then they're playing drums ultimately, you know? If someone was responsible for the drums you're hearing on a recording, whether it's whether it's programmed or it's played by a drummer, it's still drums, you know? It still serves the same purpose. So true. And and that, that was really eye-opening to me because I was like, yeah, I guess like, why isn't Jay Dilla, Jay Dilla everyone's favorite drummer? He's definitely had like a, a huge impact on the way drums are played by drummers. Um, so, and I was like, that's really true. Those are drummers too. That's like, he made a drum beat and I make drum beats. I play drum beats with people and Jay Dilla made drum beats and put them on people's records. And like Pharrell is a drummer, you know, like he makes, yeah. he produces drums. He makes, he sequences drums and programs them. And they serve the same purpose in the music that my drums serve in the music I play. So that was really eye-opening to me. Yeah, I'm absolutely t- totally with you. What's the 
what's the deciding factor and what makes you make the okay decision like okay i'm gonna take my acoustic drums to this kid or no i'm just gonna take my pads instead what's what is it that you know decides that makes that decision i've never you? really had to make that choice i mean i guess with Empressov, i used to use a, a sampler with my kit and play samples also mm-hmm. and so it was like a hybrid with nick too actually i used a pad and we have samples on music and we play to loops and stuff and it serves the music. So I, I think there's like a whole bunch of different kinds of musicians out in the world and they're all doing their thing. And as long as like it's, it serves the music ultimately all that matters. So but just, the, just listening. But does the visceral aspect of actually sitting at that kit, you know, that physical feeling, do you think that pushes you in a specific way to serve the music with an extra degree of depth to the energy? I'm really just like genuinely curious. Not, not necessarily. I mean, it, it really depends on the style and what the music is calling for. Yeah. If the music is calling for a drum set, then you should probably be playing a drum set. But, you know, I've definitely gone and seen like electronic shows or I've seen James Blake play and the drummer just plays like a SPD. And uh, that's like very deeply resonant at least in terms of like how that music resonates with me. So um, it's like a, it's a very uh, visceral experience. So I guess it's really subjective. I'd hope that everyone that's playing, playing music in front of an audience is doing it in a way that feels right for the music. I don't really think about it that way. If if a gig I had called for me to play like a, like a drum pad, I would do it. I'm not prioritizing my need to play a drum set over what the music is calling for is what I mean. No, absolutely. I'm I'm asking because I'm also exactly at a point where I'm sometimes I really don't know what makes a difference. Some of the best piano recordings I've done was with a plugin and some of these plugins, man, I get, Oh I, yeah, like Keyscape. Oh my goodness. Well, I actually use a, a, a more a less known plugin which uh, comes with the Reason uh, rack, and that thing oh, okay. blows my mind because it's it's not it's yeah. not sample playback. It's actually um, you know, created synthesis, and sometimes it oh, spooks really? me. Yeah, sometimes it spooks me out how real it sounds. You know, if I close my eyes, like yeah. I, on certain nights, I g- generally don't feel the difference between, you know, tracking a legit grand with headphones on or playing a plugin. It really feels the same. So, which yeah, is yeah, where yeah, I'm totally. really trying to pick your brain, like, you know, wh- where are we headed and what is it that... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's exactly why I said earlier on about that addictive drums thing. Like, when I got that, because I was not able to go work and play drums at my studio as much, I was bugging everyone. I was like, you guys should get this because it's pretty crazy how good it is. And and I'm yeah. totally, and my friends were making fun of me. They're like, oh, what? You're just going to play like a digital plug-in drum set rather than the real thing? And I was like, well, it serves the same purpose. So, you know, whatever gets me to the end result faster and serves the music best is what I'm most interested in. So sometimes that means like I don't play a drum set and I'm okay with that. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm more interested in like just the music than the parts i'm more interested in the sum of the parts than the actual parts of the the individual parts so does that make sense and 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 don't want to be putting words in your mouth but for me the way i look at it it, the artistry comes before the craftsmanship exactly the craftsmanship exists for the art right yeah like i tend to listen to so much music and a lot of it doesn't have real drums on it so yeah I'm, i'm i yeah i just like all music so whatever feels uh, honest and genuine is what resonates the most with me. And so sometimes that could mean 
that could mean the logic drummer you know like mm-hmm. the, the built-in like ai drums that they have i do <laughs> know people that have made albums that have played on the radio that just use the yep. the ai logic drummer and it, it yep. works so why why mess with it if it, if it inspires some sort of it elicits a reaction in you that makes you make something it's fine like that's what it is indeed the one thing i've noticed though in my experience the ones who actually use these tools in a manner uh, where it actually goes beyond the the means to a point where it doesn't really matter what they were mm-hmm. are usually people who who have done that entire circle they don't use a plugin because they don't know how to play drums necessarily right because they actually have dug deep enough where it's come to a point both are kind of well equal for lack of a better term no totally yeah sometimes i, I have that i hear that conversation sometimes where i'm like people will be like you know like oh it's all today's music doesn't use real instruments but i'm like how about you try making it though because it's hard it requires like a lot of attention and like effort you can't just turn on a computer and music doesn't just pour out of it so i like to think there's still like a, an element of like creativity and artistry involved that requires the same amount of effort as whatever music you grew up listening to required from the people that made that music you know indeed um so it's just changing and it's important to i i think it's important to 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 adapt with the music unless you're content doing what it is that you do but if you if you want to stay relevant there's no harm in like um what's the word like staying up to date with people's creative processes you know absolutely man um which which i feel like there's still the same level of skill involved for the most part it's just the skill isn't in the same things but like you need to be pretty you need to put time in to be good at making music even if it's on your computer it's not like it just comes instantly so that's why i don't see a distinction between whether you're playing a drum set or whether you're programming something you know it still requires uh, time to do to be good at it yeah completely with you man you know absolutely yeah absolutely totally with you on that and my last uh, the, the last thing i'd be curious about before um we mm-hmm. let you go and uh, and this is for uh um, some of the listeners um, i'm sure would have a lot to gain with your input on this um i, I want to acknowledge the fact that you made and built uh, a musical world for yourself mm-hmm. in a new environment where uh, you didn't have your life installed for you you had to land there on your own mm-hmm. and create this environment for you sure i mean uh, uh, an atmosphere that berkeley's um, does offer a lot but it's also what you make out of it absolutely yeah and i'm pretty sure there there has been a phase where a lot of self doubt uh, and please do correct me if i'm wrong and a lot of mental blockages where things you would have to have dealt with yeah so i'm curious uh, did they crop up and what were your tools and approaches to dealing with them. Oh, definitely there've been so many of those, yeah, mental blockages. You know, I still haven't like ever put out any music of my own. One of the big mental blockages I have is just the sheer um amount of exposure I've had to things where uh, when it comes to myself personally, mm-hmm. like like the kind of music I would like to make, I still don't know what that is because uh there's just so much music that I've been exposed to or involved with stylistically and otherwise 
So one that I still experience to this day is like, how do I want my music to sound if there was such a thing? I think one big one for me was being overexposed. Mm-hmm. Um, both from growing up in India and like, you know, doing cover band gigs and, and um, just learning a lot of contemporary music that was all pretty diverse and different led to a lot of musical confusion for me. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one that I still battle, grapple with rather. Um, how do I identify what it is that I like the most? Because I like so many different kinds of things that I guess I would, I would classify that as a blockage because it gets in the way. I don't, I don't know how to distill uh, my musical identity mm-hmm. uh, and my music. So, so that's one um, and then coming to America, I think I, I was very fortunate to just allow myself to uh, meet people and and not be attached to any one thing mm. uh, or any any one crew of people musically or like be like I'm a jazz drummer or I'm a rock drummer. I just wanted to play music. So um, I guess a lot of the blockages with that would have been like not knowing what to practice and like not having a clear idea of what I wanted to do musically, which probably has worked in my benefit for the most part, but also I feel like it is somewhat limiting and I'm envious of people that, you know, just uh, emerge fully formed as artists when they reach a certain age Mm. and don't know anything outside of what it is that they do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is part of the reason why they're so good at what they do. Yeah. If that makes sense, like I definitely Absolutely. have a bunch of friends, like songwriters that, you know, just do the one thing that it it is that they do and they're yeah. exceptional at it. Yeah. And they're exceptional at it is because they don't know anything else. They they don't know what else to do. So yep. I'm actually envious of that and I wish I had that. And, and that's a blockage because I'm like, how do I get that? I want that. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to be able to do one thing really well. Um, so... Yeah, those are my blockages that I'm trying to find a way to get past. And uh, that's, yeah, that's one. And like a lot of it is overexposure to too many things, too many ways of thinking, too many ways of playing music, uh, too many ways of, uh, yeah, making art. And I think one thing I've recognized in my friends who have done well for themselves, they, they only know what they do. They have that mm. sort of straight, single-minded focus on the thing that they're trying to do. And that's cool. It's nice to see that and recognize that as the reason for their success or why they're so good at what they do. That makes sense. Very much so. And I want that. A blockage for that. On that. I just like, I'm like, how do I get, how do I eradicate all this uh, extra stuff in my brain that I don't need? And like, just find the one thing that I want to do. Yep. So... I also was uh, recently diagnosed with uh, ADHD. Oh, for real. Which obviously had my whole life, but uh, I've been uh, taking medication for it and that's been pretty life-changing. So it doesn't change the fact that I ramble incoherently. I'm sorry for all that. No, not at all. <laughs> no, no, you don't. Uh, I would have never thought, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you to have um, gained that clarity. And It's been great, yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I work with a lot of <laughs> students uh, who deal with ADHD as well and, and clients. Really? It's been, yeah, it's been, uh, it happened when I was home in India. So I've, I've had, uh, been taking some medication and it's very helpful actually. And I, I, I wish I had it when I was younger, but I'd probably be a different person now. So 
Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's also uh, uh, very common amongst artists. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I, I did the part of the uh, thing I really didn't want to address though in the last question I asked you with regards to self-doubt is um, I guess what I was trying to get at was the whole immigrant angle and because you're one of the very few people I know who made it to Berkeley finished Berkeley and hung around in New York and stayed back in New York not a lot of people managed to do that you, pre- you really are the only one I know who's not of Indian descent who's not American of Indian descent but as a guy who was born and there's a bunch now, but for a while I was the I was one of the few. Well, sure. if the, well, it's a bunch I don't know, um, and even if they were, they haven't been doing it as long as you. Yes, I've definitely been around a little bit longer. Yeah, and they didn't do it at a time you did it. So you kind of were one of the first people to break that whole uh, blocked mindset. That oh my god, you know, why would you? think you could move to America and study music. You're not an IT guy or an engineer or something. You want to study, right. you have to study music and you're, you're not going there as a proponent of Indian classical music, which right. um, is enjoys an entirely different status in the West. Right. Well, you want to go there on their turf, learn their art. Right. Uh, there, you know, I say I do there in quote marks and then expect to be accepted uh, in their competitive field. I can imagine uh, th- th- there was a lot of naysayers around, or maybe not. I don't know. I, I shouldn't comment on that. But I mean, you, there were naysayers maybe back home. Exactly. That would be like, yes. Sure. I mean, uh, these naysayers are people I still run into even now and then, uh, which is interesting because yeah. a lot of them. Anyway, that's a whole different story. But my, my point is, uh, how did you overcome that? And what do you have to people who might be dealing with these naysayers and still have a vision they want to manifest? I mean, I think you have to just focus on your, um, on the environment you're in. Don't let people that aren't around you, uh, tell you what your experience is. Um, that's important. So be realistic and, uh, be realistic and pay attention to where you are and how to best get to what it is that you're shooting for. I'd say don't listen to people back home that have no idea what it's like where you are and what it is that you're actually trying to do. Mm. Um, you know, my parents have been very uh, supportive in some ways, but also they obviously are, are worried about me and like, you know, how are you going to live then? How are you going to settle down and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that's all fine. I understand that, but it's, I, I also know what my, um, what's the term like prospects. Maybe I know how realistic certain things are and how unrealistic other things are. Mm-hmm. And so I'm content to struggle if I have to, to keep uh, doing what it is that I do. So I think it's important to realize that too, because like a, a struggle is intimidating to a lot of people the, the, or the potential for a difficult situation mm-hmm. uh, is, is intimidating because, you know, you want to be like financially um, independent or, financially stable as soon as you can when you're pursuing any career. And, you know, with, with mine, there's absolutely no guarantee of anything. Like, mm-hmm. um, especially when the pandemic hit, we were like, Oh, what are we going to do now? Like there's no gigs and like the music community got hit the hardest. Yeah. Um, so there's just no guarantee of anything when you're in the arts, you know? Yeah. So it's important to understand that and then be realistic with yourself. And as long as you're being honest with yourself, it shouldn't matter what, you know, I've, I've recognized that I was lucky to be around a bunch of people that shared my interests. 
that uh, you know didn't seem to take a lot of work for me to be able to fit in with the circle of people I've been lucky to be around and so I recognize that as being like oh I'm lucky I have like a pretty strong um group of friends that I play music with and you know it's a, it's a good support system as well and both emotionally and otherwise yeah and so I I've always recognized that and understood that I have that and So when naysayers are like, you know, like, well, what do you? How long are you going to stay there? Why don't you come back and work in Bollywood or do, you know, pop music in India? And I'm like, no, I, you know, I could realistically keep. I'm willing to to uh, deal with the uncertainty of my choices um, as long as I can, you know, because uh, it seems to be working out for me so far, you know. But there have been times where I've had uncertainty, but I feel like everyone else was feeling the same uncertainty too, which is also sort of reassuring in a weird way. especially during the pandemic that was scary mm. um and i i don't know if you know i went home to visit my parents and then got stuck there for 6 months oh that's exactly what happened to me yeah i was in bangalore for 6 months when my parents lived now and so i couldn't come back and uh, that was scary and that that felt like i was like okay this is it this is over and i was already coming to terms with you know maybe i settle in india and it's fine like nothing freaks me out at this point so it's one thing to deal with the uh, uncertainties and uh, both financial or otherwise that come with the lifestyle of an artist it's a whole different league where um, the entire environment you kind of rely upon to keep feeding that fire is one you need permission to be around and that's something you've dealt with for the longest time being an immigrant yeah that deserves for lack of a better term an entirely different league of extra credit that you're dealing with The good thing about Berkeley in particular though is this the diversity of the student body that doesn't exist quite as much. That definitely played a role. I didn't feel like I was an outsider quite as much because like the majority of people there like me are not from there. There's you know kids from all over the world trying to do their thing. So I never felt like a much of an immigrant and like my first circle of friends, you know, we were all like pretty diverse. We had like a friend from Israel and it was me and then a couple of american kids and our japanese friend shin and you know lorely and all these other people everyone had like pretty diverse backgrounds so everyone kind of felt like an outsider and that's what brought us all together in the first place that's um, awesome man that, that, i think that's wonderful and shout out to these lovely folks who gave you that sense of community and support yeah i never felt that way honestly I, i've I never felt you're referring to like more banal shitty bureaucratic stuff stuff like paperwork and visas and getting Oh money. that But, is a yeah. nightmare. Exactly that's what I'm afraid. That. That, that's the part which also you know actually needs acknowledgement and extra credit for the oh. amount of pressure you know cultural diversity is one thing but you you're constantly having to prove your right to be in your own environment That is true and like uh, this last year when I was in India actually that's a good example because my US my O1 visa had been renewed in September of 2020 and uh, I'd been in the US on my renewed O1 for a few months before I came home to visit and uh, then the US embassies all closed down and unfortunately I couldn't return to the US because I needed the actual physical visa stamped in my passport mm. um I had the paper that allows me to stay in the US but once you leave you need to come back and you get this physical visa stamped in your passport and you need to go to a consulate to get that done. Dang. And uh they just wouldn't do it and I was like um I had to keep emailing them being like I don't think you understand like I've lived in the US for 16 years my life I've spent my entire adult life there. My life is in you know I rent an apartment I've lived in for 8 years. All my work is there. And that's the first time I felt like I was like oh I don't belong there like they they don't think I need to go back. 
they're like oh well, it's too it's not an emergency so we're not going to give you a visa so it took 6 months for me to get an appointment and um wow only reason i got an appointment is big yeah the only reason i got an appointment was it was an emergency appointment because they got a tour confirmed and then was able to send a letter saying hey if you don't let him in then i as an american will lose money and then that's the reason they they gave me the visa finally because some americans stood to lose money it affected them economically uh wow so yeah that's when i was like oh i guess i'm not essential to anyone and yeah at least in the eyes of the state over there so th- that experience that and like i'm getting a visa as a pain and it's expensive and it's hard and i have to do it every three years so i'm trying to steer myself in the direction of like more permanent uh residence as soon as possible mm-hmm. so i don't have to worry about that stuff yeah mad respect man mad respect and more power to you that's that that's, I, i didn't really consider that as what you were asking but yes that's been it's something that doesn't get talked about much not enough anyway in artistic circles that's one thing to show acceptance for another's fellow artists and another to bypass the blatant discrepancies in the have and have not statuses of artists depending on what their papers define them to be yes and like yeah that's that's the other experience i had yesterday with my my partner telling me that he didn't want to continue with the studio and i was like oh no cuz like this is so much harder for me now than it is for you because i you know i have status here and like it all kind of hinges on like what i do here like i have an artist visa and it's it, it like i i get it based on like the quality of work i do in america you know it's like yeah and so this studio is like a big part of my life and so not being able to keep that is is pretty scary yeah and and yeah that's like a you just being able to stay here and maintain my status is a is a challenge that other people and around don't have to deal with yeah i feel you brother i totally feel you i mean i i, I want to be open about my privileges i'm second generation german and i have a german passport now after lots of bureaucratic loopholes i had to deal with for the mm-hmm. longest time but i i, I did have uh, an indian passport for a while too uh, and i've been in very similar positions where um like uh, like a band literally broke up with me and these are people i knew for decades they were like brothers who cuz they thought i was exaggerating uh, or being dramatic about visa issues i'd been struggling with cuz there was this exam i had to finish at college uh, failing which of my visa would have gotten cancelled at the time like within weeks and i'd have to leave wow and uh, as a result of which i had to cancel a photo shoot for an album release and they took their personally they thought i wasn't taking the band seriously enough and one of them even went on to say I hope you get your asylum soon in Afghanistan it was pretty bad and uh, you know for the record I forgive them they they literally were especially at the time zero aware of exactly yeah uh, of the discrepancies between you know the stakes that were I was dealing with they've never been in that position right and like that's that is true that's that's yeah i guess i guess i didn't consider it but like everyone that i tour with has to be aware that yeah um you know there's uh, this whole thing where i have to get visas to go really anywhere exactly and you know it's an it's an added expense also um because the british uh, the uk visas are deeply overpriced they're like oh jesus yeah 250 to 300 pounds sometimes 500 pounds i think they've paid yeah. and like, just keep in mind that you I, you have to pay for that for me to come do one show with you in the uk and is it worth it and 
I mean, that to me, like just the UK thing in particular bothers me so much because I'm like, why do I have to get a visa to go to the UK? Why do I have to pay them anything? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, why do we have to give, Absolutely. why do we have to give the UK money for a visa? Sure, I'll apply for a visa, but why do you want my money? Like, how about you hand us back those Kohino diamonds and then we'll talk. Like, yeah. You know, like, it's just like, why do I need to pay so much money to come in and play a show? And that's something that people that hire me to tour have to keep in mind. I'm like, just so you know, we're going anywhere in Europe or whatever. You need to factor in this additional expense of visas. So, yeah. And I'm sorry. You just opened up a can of worms there, which I could just literally. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, and the I UK one in particular really bothers me because I feel Indeed. like, you know, aren't oh, we still yeah, part of the yeah. Commonwealth or something? I'm like, why do I have to pay for it though? Like. Sure, let me do the application, but why do you need money? Um, I don't know. Right? They still have our, yeah. our diamonds, I believe. Indeed, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's like, okay, like Indian people should, at the very least, be able to walk in and out of there without having to pay. I, I, could, I could go on a, yeah, a whole different, whole whole new can of worms. I yeah. Probably out of the scope of this podcast but um, I, th- I feel like it's uh, become so normalized for me that that's such a part of my experience that i didn't even consider that's what you were asking but yeah exactly exactly that's the thing it's just like it's just so normal that i and like i've made it so like i've been so desensitized to it that like most people i know don't really understand what that every three years that now somewhat minor stresses because like once you get the artist visa you meet the requirements and then you're just renewing it at that point but the first time was yeah my whole life was hinging on it i was like well I'm- hello me uh i hear you I have to speak okay yeah i hear you sorry now? yeah okay I hear awesome you. yeah no worries well, uh, yeah, we, we were we were almost done anyway. I just uh, hadn't counted on uh, going on as long as we did, which is actually a good thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope this isn't too rambly. And like one of the main uh, one of the main reasons I was apprehensive to do a, 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 a audio interview is because I'm very self conscious about my accent. Really, which we should have talked about, but um, um, yeah, because like my my accent morphs in and out of like. My Indian and my American accent. Yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah, and so I was like, what am I going to sound like in an interview? I don't want, you know, all my friends back home to hear this and then make fun of my my ambiguous accent. <laughs> something I considered. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, it's... Uh, well, I'm actually quite familiar with it. My accent's gone, undergone quite a few changes over the years as well. Yeah. Intimately I mean, it's understandable if you've been, like, uh, out somewhere else for, like, more than half your life, so... Yeah, there's that. In my case, it turns out the, the first time I apparently actually learned to fake an accent was when I actually went back to India as a kid. I picked up an Indian ah. accent to kind of fit in. It took me it took me only like thirty years to figure that one out. So now I just stick to my base accent, and people are just gonna have to fucking deal with it. Um, yeah. But no, I mean quite the contrary, man. I mean, uh, I, I, FYI, I, I never even thought about it. This is actually a topic we talk about pretty often because we have a lot of TCKs and like global nomads on this podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So you're you were definitely on the right podcast to um, have talked about that. Yeah. Um, this was amazing, Vishal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Tia. No, brother. It's uh, it's. Uh, uh, I'm, it's, I'm it's, sorry it took so long. But no, uh, no, not at all. It was. Um, 
uh, it was worth the wait, and I really appreciate all you know all all the stories you shared with us. Um, Very vulnerable and um, insightful. I'm glad. Yeah, and I think a lot of people will find a little bit of themselves in these stories. I hope so. And the necessary inspiration and insight they need to maybe figure out parts of their own journey. So thanks so much for doing this, man. I sincerely appreciate uh, it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. On that, on that note, I will officially stop the recording this time with that Zoom doing it for us. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, and talk soon. Just another voice out in.